right. Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. My name is Ben Wager with my co-host Don Gibson. Yeah, there. And today we're looking at a couple of movies uh, from the 1970s that were adapted originally from plays. And then uh, eventually they were filmed and were considered in their both in their very different ways, uh, very successful films with strong legacies. So we're going to open up with our first film, uh, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. And Don's going to talk a little bit about that. You know, The Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, is a pretty fascinating film, uh, as maybe people have gleaned from these podcasts. I've watched a lot of films. I'd never seen The Rocky Horror Picture Show until you know, 10 days ago when I was doing it for this, uh, for the podcast. And I was always a little bit, I always shied away from it because I thought it was this sort of experience where you had to participate and everyone dressed up. And it was this thing that was intimidating to me. Uh, and I was like, and I, I knew the songs. So Rocky Horror is definitely known for lots of the sort of fun energy, late fifties, early sixties style rock and roll. And it's derivative of like, and all these lyrics are about science fiction and horror uh, B movies, and that's the genre. And the songs are just a lot of fun. I mean, I'm sure most people know the song Time War, maybe science fiction double feature. There's a couple of really great songs in it that I just knew. My sister loved uh, the film, and we had the soundtrack in our house. And I was like, these are great songs. But I never watched the film because I thought, ah, it's just some sort of campy thing that uh, it's got great music, and that's, that's about it. Uh, so I went in with uh, quite low expectations. And I have to say, I was really quite uh, surprised at what a really well-made film it was. The story isn't that, you know, it's it's based on, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, science fiction, B-horrors, the number of films made by a production company in, in, in England. This is a based in England. The original play was based in England. They shot in England. And there was these film called Hammer Films. And uh, they were just, you know, uh, knockoff B films with uh, Steve Reeves was a well-known guy. You know, he's an oiled, oiled up bodybuilder. And there was just lots of, you know, people screaming, running around and, you know, Frankensteins and that kind of stuff. And so this, the guy that, that uh, wrote the film, his name is Richard O'Brien, and he plays this character Riff Raff in it. Um, he just wrote this thing on, on his own, um, you know, because he loved these movies. He had a real affinity towards them. And he made this sort of campy thing that was basically an ode to this sort of era of uh, films. So then he met this uh, fellow Australian director named Jim Sharman, who thought it was really interesting. And uh, the concept as a play, and it started out as basically an off-Broadway. I mean, it was in England. It was in London. So, but a very small theater. The thing became incredibly popular. And then it was finally made into a film in 75. It was released. Funny thing about the, the film, though, is that it, it didn't do well at all. Terribly originally. And I, I mean, it, it liked in a few, uh, you know, can't college campuses. And, and then uh, they had the idea of, oh, why don't we uh, show it as a, a late night sort of film for people to go to. And then that was shown at the Waverly in New York and another theater it became this thing. And the remarkable thing about Rocky Horror, it's still playing in theaters today. It's the longest running film in theaters. It was released in 75 and it has been continuous release up until today. Obviously, there's a very small releases. There are midnight performances. Uh, people still go. And of course, there's the big, uh, you know, dress up and show. Did you ever see it in theater, Ben? No, you know, I, like you, I was somebody who had not seen a full version of Rocky Horror Picture Show. I'd seen clips and and some of the, uh, you know, I was familiar with some of the music. And obviously in pop culture, it has its own iconic reputation. And so, you know, I, much like you, felt similar into, uh, this is like a, you know, cult 
musical thing where people, you know, the experience of of going and dressing up and singing along and all the props and all that stuff is the value of this film. And so I also was kind of going into it with low expectations and I actually came out of it with low expectations. So it, it was really, it really kind of just my expectations were met, you know, as I watched it, I could understand that, you know, it was a real tribute to those movies, which I never enjoyed those movies either. And so, you know, I like Susan Sarandon as an actress and I thought she was very good in the movie. Richard O'Brien, who plays Riff Raff, he was just, just kind of has that weird spooky thing. I find Tim, uh, Curry, Tim Curry, he annoys me. I didn't really enjoy him. Very oh much my goodness. Movie. I just loved Tim Curry. Yeah, I, found, I found it tiring to depend so much on his character and all those scenes. I felt some of the other characters had more interesting opportunities to explore, but it just was too focused on on his character. And I felt his character was kind of one-dimensional and very boring. Uh, you know, after a, a scene or two, I just waiting for this thing to end. And it just goes on forever with these musical numbers that are just not even that good. You know, for me, it, it was an experience that I had to sit through so that we could get our authentic feedback in this podcast, but it's certainly never going to be something I ever turn on again or attend in person. I feel like, uh, you know, I, I can say, check that off the bucket list well uh we couldn't be at further ends of the spectrum because i watched it two or three times and uh i just thought i mean for me when you talk about uh, tim curry as frankenfurter who's like the derivative idea of dr frankenstein i just thought his character was fascinating and this film in terms of a portrayal of sexuality this stuff's happening now a lot more of people being comfortable you know there's the famous song uh, transsexual transylvania and um, he's a transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. And this whole idea of, you know, gender fluidity, I was really quite stunned at how sophisticated it was. There's a scene where he, so Brad, the story is really simple. Brad and Janet, they're very two very American couple, very clean, good people. And they end up in this castle with all these people with, you know, they're from a planet, but it's obviously, it's really about not fitting into society. And they, they, they live in this castle and it's all metaphorical for, you know, being who you are and the people that are good and clean or Brad and Janet, you know, Janet's played by Susan Sarandon. They're the people that don't fit in into this world. And uh, so then they, they stay overnight and there's, and as you say, it's a series of, you know, the story, I wouldn't necessarily talk about development of characters so much. So I do think Frankenfurter, the Tim Curry character does develop in an interesting way. While they stay there overnight, he has sex with both Brad and Janet, which I was, you know, separately. And I was really, you know, when Janet and Susan Sarandon is running around in her bra and panties, basically the entire uh, show. And uh, so we're, you know, we're like sort of, you know, oh, well, you know, she's an innocent girl and she loved this guy, Brad, but, you know, she's been swayed and, you know, she's having sex with this kind of outlandish fellow. And I'm like, that's kind of, we've seen that in films before, but then he goes and he has sex with Brad. I, I was just like, my goodness, this film is I was amazed at how how edgy. much it was very how edgy. edgy how much how sure. far they're willing to go I was I was really impressed uh, by that now, I think um, I agree with you I think it was very edgy for the 1970s I think it was a very edgy film for that time now, as I watch it, you know, it's not a film that, as we look at our society today, it's not edgy at all. I feel like a lot of films explore this uh, on a comedic level as well. You know, we see a lot of these different films now looking at this like in and out. It's a story that's been touched on a little bit. And, you know, the mashing of all these little B-movie kind of campy storylines with the, the aliens and the kind of connecting it all to music. I think it's a very stylistic choice they did. And it's just not one that I personally 
uh, have any interest in at all. For me, there's just not a lot of value in uh, the choices that the production made throughout it that connected to me as as something of any kind of entertainment worthy experience. I cannot believe how far apart we are on this. So you don't like, you don't like the music. Well, you're a little older than me, and so this music might have you know you you had more of a '70s experience than I have as a as a teenager or a young you know as a as a kid. You know, I don't have that uh, kind of teenage music connection yet at that time you know that part of the experience of taking me back to that is zero I don't have that at all I mean I was you know when this film was made I was seven I liked I never liked meatloaf style music like the big storyline operatic rock and roll crap that uh, meatloaf kind of pandered to Wait a minute. You're telling me you don't like Paradise by the Dashboard Light? Yeah, it's just, it's like, it goes on forever. You know, there's, you know, it's just not my thing, you know. The style of this, all of that combined just made me dread this experience. Going into it and dread, and the only happy part I had was when it ended. Goodness, okay, well... All right. So you're making your point clear. I'll I'll try another angle. The story I actually don't think is that bad. The the portrayal of these ideas of of people that didn't belong in society or or the way society was then, you know, I mean, even being gay in those days was, you know, you couldn't be gay to and you, you could be fired for being homosexual. And, and this is just so much further than that. It's just like, forget being gay. I mean, that's, that's, that's being conservative in this world. I guess gender fluid, really, transsexual. And it's just this whole idea of like, you cannot define me by these, these, these tropes that were, that were in society. And so that's the reason I think it's so effective. And I was really, I, I was really taken by it. But also, so my wife is, a, she's an art historian and she, she curates art. And she was fascinated by the portrayal of art in it. And there's all these representations of the American Gothic. I think everyone's familiar with that. The, the grumpy man, the farmer with a pitchfork. And it's actually his daughter, I read a little bit. Everyone thinks it's his wife, it's his daughter. So it's a classically known American painting. And this painting is actually represented like three, four different times in the film. And there's a final sequence where there's the riffraff. This, he's a guy from the planet. Um, he's holding not a, a pitchfork, but a ray gun like that. And then a number, number, number of other times we see representations of the American Gothic. And then there's also the, this pool that everyone, there's a big scene in it and, and every, a lot of characters die in it. And at the bottom of it is the well-known scene from the Sistine Chapel of Adam touching um, God's, their fingers almost touching. There's, there's also another, the Mona Lisa is in this. Now. And so, yeah, there's all these representations of art and it's, it's really interesting. And you, so you wonder like, what are they doing in here? Why do they keep doing this? They're, they're obviously very purposeful. And my wife pointed out they're not actually the works themselves, they are representations of them. And she talked about all this whole idea of commodifying of art, how, you know, we don't look at art for art's sake. We look at it more for what is it worth, like a value, a dollar value. And I think that that's an overall theme in the entire film about who we are, how we define ourselves and, you know, buying and selling ourselves. And this sort of, I was really impressed the set design and how much that is just like the subconscious thing. And we were, we watched it a couple of times and we kept looking for all these things because there's all these, you know, they call them Easter eggs now, but uh, there are all these little things to look for that in the set design issue was fascinating. And then also the costume design, there's a lot of people can sit, think there was an influence that Rocky Horror had on the punk movement, especially the ripped leotards and the, you know, the sort of patching together of all sorts of various clothes that don't match and they look kind of torn and ripped. Some people think that Rocky Horror actually inspired 
that. So costume design and set design, I don't actually normally talk about. And this film really is, we talk about plays. It really does feel like a play. They take advantage of the, the camera. They have lots of great point of view shots and there's lots of great tracking shots, but it, it does, it feels like a performance. There's many scenes where there's dance sequences and the performing it does feel like we're watching a play, but I think it did translate as well to uh, the, the film. But yeah, so my, I, I think it's not just an entertaining film. I just was fascinated at, at its nuances, which I couldn't believe I was seeing, you know, because it's attacking traditional art. It's talk, attacking what, what film genres are, attacking, uh, not attacking, but addressing sexual stereotypes. It really made me think about a lot of things and I'm quite compelled by it. Not to, I like the music. And Tim Curry, my goodness, you know, most people I think kind of know him now, the guy, the hotel manager in Home Alone 2. He, he did a number of smaller films in supporting roles. And this film was nominated for absolutely nothing. It got no recognition by any award group anywhere, except huh. for maybe a, that surprised you, Ben? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> anyway. I, you know, look, I, I could understand how, you know, it spurred a kind of a countercultural cult movement. I mean, I, I could see how people are looking for opportunities to kind of um, connect to, to something that they didn't feel they were represented by. And I think that we see that film driving that. And so, you know, looking at it from that level, I, I believe that, you know, there is a value to the film. It's just not personally something that I enjoyed or would ever see again. But I mean, I recognize yeah. its value in regards to pop cinema history. I mean, just the opening, the, 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 uh, the poster and the opening sequence of the lip singing the first song, I just, it's such a, for me, it's like such a compelling image. I mean, I just thought it was like, okay, I'll watch. And, I, and as, as, as you said, I'd only seen scenes from it and I knew about, you know, Meatloaf coming in and, and then getting killed. And, and there was, I knew all these moments that happened in it, but I didn't know anything about the story really I, I just knew that these people went to a castle and and i was just the opening image of there's a, a pair of lips singing the song and it's just the lips and and blackout around them and i was like what a what a great image to start a film with so yeah I, yeah no I, and for me i was thinking man that person needs a little dental work that's that's where i was on that so that's magenta that's the woman what's her name it's the woman that plays uh yeah uh, she's like the housekeeper yeah yeah all right well you know there you go there's no there's no such thing as as ever unison on this one that's for sure well at least you know you have the value now of putting this into your film database so that you can you know maybe you're this is a film you can bring back out when you are teaching about the countercultural values of film and in, in society you know yeah i mean i would i would totally teach this film because there's a there's a lot going on in it so let's move on our our next film uh which is the film that i selected is called cabaret and it's a, a film that uh, came out in 1972 i believe and it was directed by bob fossey it stars uh, liza minnelli uh, michael york Joel Gray, but mostly those are the three major characters in, in the film. It, it was well-recognized, well-received. I believe it, it was nominated for... No, it won it, eight. It won it, eight Oscars. In fact, it has won the most Oscars without winning Best Picture. And it was I nominated believe, for 10. Yeah, and I believe it still holds that record today as being the film that had won the most Oscars without winning the Best Picture. The Best Picture that year uh, went to a a well-known film called The Godfather. But yeah, this yeah. film is, it's very interesting. It's a film that is based around 
this small cabaret in uh, Berlin, Germany, um, pre-World War II in the early 30s. Uh, they called Wiedmar, Germany, which is the time when, late 20s, probably early 30s, when uh, the Nazi movement is starting to rise and permeate throughout Germany. And the depression is very much a part of the problems of, of most Germans. There's immense poverty. And then, of course, there's immense wealth. People are trying to survive. And uh, at this cabaret is an American girl uh, whose name is Sally Bowles. And she is a, a an entertainer who is part of the ensemble of entertainers at the cabaret. Joel Gray, who plays uh, the MC or Master of Ceremonies, he doesn't actually ever have a name in the, in the movie. Or And he was also in the same role as in the Broadway play. And he, and coincidentally, he, he won the Tony for uh, Best Supporting Actor in a play. And then he also won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And only, I believe, one other person has done that. Uh, for Fences, Viola Davis. Uh, and I will tell you that Joel Gray was absolutely phenomenal in this. In this, I mean, he was just so powerful in his, his in his role. And that character came out in, in the film, I thought was very strong. I mean, he just really popped on the screen in that role as the MC. And a lot of his, I mean, he had a really fun role. I mean, a lot of his role is, he doesn't really even um, speak to any of the other characters. It's just him basically interacting on the stage and talking to the audience and being in these musical numbers. And, uh, and he's so good at it. I was really, really impressed with that character and Joel Gray's portrayal of that character. And I will tell you that, you know, Bob Fosse did not, wasn't a big fan of Joel Gray taking that role. Some people feel that Bob Fosse didn't want anybody to take that role because he wanted it because he has that background, but there was a lot of tension on the set between them when Joel Gray found out that, you know, Fosse was trying to not have him be in that role, but he did, he lost control and the producers won out on that decision. But it obviously that tension might have helped in the role because there is a lot of tension in regards to the to the film. And the interesting thing about the whole set of cabarets is it's kind of walking this tightrope between Nazification of Germany and kind of this free spirit celebration of of just hedonistic pursuits and that's what the cabaret was really focused on so a mixture of people coming in there but they were not welcoming to the nazis and and they also represented some of the anti-semitism that was starting to to develop pieces that were performed at the cabaret reflected the anti-semitism that was driving through germany at the time they were representing jews as gorillas and and love stories about being with a a gorilla but then at the end he goes but i like i like a jew you know and there was this kind of connection to the anti-semitism that we see liza minnelli who plays sally bowles plays a very you know insecure uh just wants to be famous and looking for opportunities and you know loose morals and sleeps around and, and wealth is something that attracts her and Michael York, who plays um, the character, he's an Englishman who, who comes in to be a teacher. And he gets a, he runs into Sally Bowles. They have a connection. She gets him a, a room in her boarding house. And then they, they kind of develop a really very close friendship. And the film is very much surrounding that relationship. And ca the cabaret is very much a part of the, the influence and the development of the storyline. And then we also see some characters who are coming in and out. There's a Jewish, wealthy Jewish woman who's um, pursued by another friend of theirs, is hiding the fact that he's Jewish, but the woman doesn't want to marry him because she thinks he's not Jewish. And then there's this whole, you know, him struggling through that as a history teacher. I really was impressed with how the film kind of wrapped 
the historical importance of that time into the into the film and how they portrayed it very kind of dark realistic way that wove into the into the musical into the story in a, in a way that educated people on the realities of the situation back then on a certain level that was sometimes I think more accurate than we've seen in other films even though this is kind of a musical uh, version of of that time Don what do you think of the film I think the most interesting part of it is the tone as you say it's sort of comic and it's sort of a light and it's, it's light but it's also dark <laughs> that's that's what i'm saying and i think joel gray captures this idea incredibly well because he comes across as a cabaret somebody entertaining us with great songs and good dancer and, and funny lines but the darkness is uh emphasized all the time and like everyone's having fun in there they're drinking as you say there's all this hedonistic uh behavior but at the same time, this looming feeling of the Nazis rising up, it overwhelms everything. So he's might, Joel Gray might be laughing and, and, and making fun of the, the Nazis as it uh, evolves. We're realizing that, you know, inside the theater, they feel safe, but the world outside them is totally transforming everything. I love the opening shot and closing shots of the film. It, we see this sort of with through distorted glass, um, um, the, the patrons in the, in the theater, and then we only see there's one Nazi that's in the corner and it's like the Nazis are not really accepted in this theater. And we have the same image at the end. And basically the theater is, is full of Nazis. One thing I would say, it's not so subtle. I mean, this feeling of the Nazis rising up and, and them doing whatever they can to sort of ignore it. There's one scene in a, in a, a it's the only scene that the only song that takes place not inside the cabaret. It's a young, you know, German youth that sings a, you know, proud uh, patriotic uh, song about the fatherland. And it's eventually everybody in the cafe, well, 90% of the people at the cafe stand up and sing this patriotic song, which of course is very, uh, you know, it's all about only the true Aryan nation and all that kind of stuff. And we can see the older people and people that don't look like them feeling uncomfortable and not like they belong. And so that's, the, that's the only scene that, only song that's outside the theater. And I think it's an effective scene, but you are, the message is, is very clear um, over and over again of, you know, do what you can. You can't ignore these people. And it's very appropriate for today of what, you know, we've we've dealt with uh, with the rise of, of Trump and Trumpism or whatever you want to call it. And how you can't just ignore these kinds of things, because as much as we might want to mock and, and, and make fun of them, uh, these things are a threat and a, and a danger to society. So that message comes across. Uh, really well through cabaret. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, a good point you're bringing up is that this film also has a certain sense of timelessness in what it's trying to portray and the messages that it's, even though it uses Nazism in World War II and the rise of that in Germany, the sense of the cyclical waves of, of you know, polarization within a country, fascism, you know, liberalism, communism, whatever ism that happens to be rising in your country. This film kind of represents the operational philosophy of a society that is experiencing it. Because one of the other things I noticed in this film that I liked a lot was the everyday people were kind of tapped into the moment and you, and you got their feedback. So for instance, whenever Sally would come back to the boarding house, they started to sense that the other boarders who were just very average people who are just trying to kind of survive day by day, they were becoming more and more pro-Nazi. You know, they were like the conversations they were having in the living rooms and anti-Semitic feelings that were pushing through the society from the Nazi propaganda were, were uh, taking hold on some of the population. And you could hear it in some of the everyday 
conversations as they evolved throughout the film, the, the, the anti-Semitism was definitely there. And you always saw acts of anti-Semitism kind of woven into the to the storyline as well. And just the brutality of the Nazis, basically, if anybody went against them or publicly attacked them in any way, they they kind of came back and just beat people to death and left them in front of stores or in the middle of the street. You know, others would just kind of ignore that and, and walk around it or whatever. And you started to see a, a society that is becoming dehumanized by these acts a little bit because they're just kind of like, oh, okay, well, that happens with these Nazis and we just have to kind of live our lives day to day, you know? Yeah, we just, we tolerate them for now. And there's a moment when um, the Michael York character walks past this, this wealthy man with, with this wealthy man and they, they we see that murdered, uh, it's a communist and, and his reaction is, well, you know, they're ridiculous, but at least they're getting rid of the communists for us. And once they do that, then we'll take care of them. And it's that sort of awful cynical attitude of basically using fringe or violent elements to do dirty work and then, and then oh, we'll take care of them later. And of course, that's a stupid idea because it, it isn't obviously not going to work very well. And I think I want to point out Joel Gray, as you said, uh, won the best supporting actor. And this is the year of Godfather. And um, so Godfather won the best picture. There was three guys from the Godfather nominated for best supporting actor, uh, Robert Duvall and Al Pacino and James Caan. And I just thought it was fascinating that, you know, Godfather is a great film and those are all great roles. I can't believe that Al Pacino was considered a supporting actor. Well, in the first Godfather, Um, the first Godfather, I would say that, you know, it's an ensemble cast. The second Godfather 2 is definitely the main character. Yeah, fair enough. But but that said, you know, I'd say Joel Gray was, uh, he's just great. He does, as we were talking about the beginning, that this idea of humor and fun, but with this dark foreboding uh, tone, uh, he emphasizes that uh, remarkably well. And the other thing, I think this film does actually connect to Rocky Horror really well for the issues of sexuality and, you know, being who you are and, uh, you know, not letting society define you. So, of course, you know, that, that clearly it's defined by the treatment of the Jews and the, Nat- and the Nats Germany. And that's the story in this. Um, not our, our main characters aren't Jewish, but there are characters. So we, we see them through that. But it's also the persecution of the fringe of society and people's, you know, de- how they define themselves. Sexuality has obviously been a major issue. And clearly the Nazis didn't like any notion except for the, you know, the husband and wife, you know, nuclear family stuff. And so there's, a, you know, there's a love triangle between you know, Liza Minnelli's character, Michael York, and this wealthy man, and they're basically all sleeping around with each other. And so there's homosexuality. Liza Minnelli is, you know, she's not dressed as a classical beauty. She apparently modeled a role off the flappers in the in the 20s. And so her hair is very short and she's incredibly made up. And so she, and I, you know, she's, uh, this persona is definitely one loved by the drag queen. So there's a real questioning of sexuality and, and not wanting to conform to societal standards is definitely being done in, in this film. And I think the way they did it, it had much more of a legitimate connection to the storyline in, in the sense that it's, it was an undertone to the character's development. And it wasn't just kind of thrown in your face like, hey, you know, this is, you know, we're transsexual, Transylvanian. I love that. Just campy, whatever that Rocky Horror stuff was. But the way that they incorporated those issues were, it was much more um, well-designed into the flow of the film. And also, one of the things that I didn't mention before, but I wanted to bring up was the frenetic energy and style and, and, and looks on Joel Gray as he performed. I think that might have impacted some of the development of the later films that we see 
uh, like for instance, the Joker, the character of the Joker played in some of the later Batman films. I could definitely, I felt like there was a real connection to the facial expressions and intensity of Joel Gray in character, the, the MC. And looking at how the guys who play Heath Ledger and and um, not so much Heath as much Phoenix portrayed it in in his film The Joker, but I, I mean I, I felt there were some similarities and some influences in regards to those two characters. I'm now curious whether you know Joaquin Phoenix might have used Joel Gray's performance in Cabaret as something to kind of to build the development of that character in his film. Yeah, th- definitely. I, as you said, there's this feeling, the tone. Is like it seems like it's one thing, but then when you're watching for a while, it's like, wait a minute, this is about something totally different. I, I agree, there's a similarity there. Uh, also, we haven't really talked very much about Liza Minnelli, and um, she is just she's phenomenal in this film. This is probably this is probably considered a great film. She also did like Arthur a few years later with Dudley Moore, but I think this is the film that she's best known for. She was nominated for, and she won the Best Actor uh, Actress. Uh, interesting enough, she didn't get the role on Broadway. Um, she'd actually been in a show, another Broadway show, and she'd actually won the Tony. And then they said that she was too inexperienced to take the cabaret role when I was on Broadway. And I'm fascinated by what all that really meant, the politics, because, of course, Les Minnelli was uh, Judy Garland's daughter. And, you know, if anyone knows much about Judy Garland, she was just a remarkable talent. But, of course, she was also you know, had real issues with substance abuse and she was a pretty challenging parent to have and obviously an overwhelming cultural icon. So anyway, I guess, and Liza Minnelli also had a famous director father. Uh, so she Vincent, had to come Vincent, out. I think Vincent Minnelli. Vincent and, Minnelli. And, and a thing that you're bringing up is, you know, he was a big part of how she created this character because he, she wanted it to be this kind of flapper character. And he really helped her develop the research and, and prepare for that role in regards to the connections to you know, the, the classic 20s flapper stars. She's, she's great in this film. I mean, if uh, I, I totally agree about Joel Gray, but the performances, the songs, when, when I hear her voice, like I'm a huge Judy Garland fan. I just love Wizard of Oz. Her voice is so much like her mother's and she has these moments when she's really sort of weak or a little bit scared or vulnerable. And she talks in this very small voice and it's just exactly like her mother's. And it's, it's just sort of, it's very, I mean, she's such a different character. Liza Minnelli and Judy Garland were never the same, like in terms of their portrayal of the characters they played. They're very different, but there's so many similar, you know, obviously the facial, but also the voice. And there's this innocence, like there's this confidence that she has, like I can conquer anything, I can do anything. And there's this whole issue whether she's gonna have a baby or not. And, and she's like, I'm confident. And she's just no confidence whatsoever. It's a total facade. And I, that character was, is a character that Judy Garland developed in her life, really, as well, later. I was I'm very compelled by just simply watching Liza Minnelli basically, you know, be so vulnerable and, and um, really make a connection to this character and the situation that this character uh, had to go through in, in Nazi Germany at the time. And she did, she did win the Oscar for this, I believe, didn't she? She did. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it was well-deserved, I think. You know, some people yeah. speculate that that Oscar was given to her because her mother had been snubbed all those years. But I don't, I think that she, that yeah. was a, a strong role, a strong portrayal of, of that character, and she really made it her own. I felt that there was a real connection to the mannerisms of that role in some levels, like, you know, those big eyes just kind of staring, and they constantly were made up and really emphasized because her eyes are, you know, very large. You know, she the imperfections of her character played out very well, and the way that she kind of flowed between the strengths and the weaknesses uh, in those moments you know, I it was very seamless. She it felt very natural, and and I think 
it was well deserved. The Oscar was a good I totally agree. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting when you think about Cabaret and, and The Godfather being in the same year. And I'm sure most people would think now, oh, The Godfather must have won, you know, 10 awards. The film that was incredibly successful in terms of award season was actually Cabaret. And when you, and they, it also won for cinematography and the cinematography is, is great. Tone, uh, it's, it's quite dark uh, often. I mean, we're in a, in a cabaret theater, but, it, and there's only a couple of moments where we're outside and it's bright. There's this feeling of, you know, um, grayness. It's certainly not a bright scenario that's being painted and it's, it's done uh, really well. And actually I didn't even, I read about him when I preparing for this, um, his name, he did 2001 and Polanski's test. His name is uh, Jeffrey Unsworth. It won for cinematography as well. Cinematography in Godfather is, you know, it's, it's remarkable. This time happens sometimes where you have two films that uh, uh, come at the same time and they're both great. But yeah, this film is is definitely worth seeing. Recommended highly. Yeah, me too. Me too. I really enjoyed it. So I think that wraps up our episode of Cinema Around the Corner. I as We're moving into the 80s, which I'm a little concerned about in regards to plays that were adapted into films. Uh, we haven't selected our choices yet, but we'll we'll be, we'll be talking okay. about it and we'll let you know very soon. So thanks again for listening to Cinema Around the Corner and we'll see you again in our next episode. See you later. Mm-hmm.